Hi, this is author Raymond D. Feist, and you are listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. With over 18 million copies sold, translated into 15 languages, a sprawling fantasy series that clocks in at 30-plus novels and short stories, there's no doubt today's guest has left an impact on readers across the globe. As an author of the Rift War Cycle, our guest has established himself as a master of fantasy by creating complex and magical worlds. He's a New York Times and Times of London best-selling author, film collector, wine aficionado, and devout football fan. Joining us on Skype from his home in San Diego, the Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Raymond E. Feist to the show. Ray, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. There's no doubt you've had a legacy in the fantasy genre since your first book, The Magician, was published in 1982. Since then, the series has clocked in at 30 volumes. We've had authors on the show who've maybe penned a novel or a trilogy, but with 30 novels, no doubt your career in epic fantasy has been nothing short of epic. I really wish somebody early on had explained to me that uh, trilogy meant three, not 30. I just, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I didn't understand. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a real problem with the, with the term legacy because, you know, my first reaction is I'm not dead yet. Uh, <laughs> and then... Beyond that, it's also it's the nature of of the craft. I think for for most of us, we work alone. You know, we get yelled at by editors on a regular basis, but uh, for the, for the most part, you know, I'm sitting in my ratty ass t shirt and my uh, old gym shorts, sucking down coffee. Um, or if I'm really running late, you know, after five o'clock, it's probably a single malt scotch. But it's just me and the computer and. In a very weird way, I, I only realize that other people are reading this stuff, <laughs> even though I've you know I've walked at the bookstores and seen a wall of my stuff. But it, it, there's there's weird disconnect that that I have, which is that uh, you know uh, people show up at signings and they bring stacks of books, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at them like, oh, you actually read this stuff? Wow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and that sense of isolation, that sense of uh, you know being in that bubble, I think really makes it hard for me to to using the old Star Trek term. Or that was, you know, originally from Stranger in a Strange Land, you know, the whole I grok Spock thing. I don't really grok. I don't grasp, totally engage and understand um, where I am outside that bubble. And and I think that actually it may be a part of why it works for me, because I think I could be like re- reduced to paralysis worrying about what people were going to think about what I was writing. So uh, I'm definitely in the I write for myself category. And uh, when, a, when a writer says, gee, you influenced me, I, I, I kind of go, oh, okay. Because... And here's the thing I was driving at. I still kind of feel like the new kid after 30 years. You know, I, I walked to my first science fiction convention in like 1984, 83, I'd have to go back and look. And I sat in the bar and the first guy to sit down next to me was the legendary editor, Terry Carr, who was a, who was a sensational guy. I mean, what a what a loss that he passed so early in his life. But a great guy. And, and you know, I met people like like Harlan Ellison and, and Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven and, you know, guys that I had read growing up you know andre norton you know she was terrific to me and so in that sense that whole legacy thing i keep going but i'm still one of the kids i'm still one of the newbies and i think maybe that's what keeps me going and makes it fresh have you ever met a a newer writer that said you were an inspiration and then they went on to be some famous writer yeah, with Chris Valliani, when he was when he came out with Aragon, you know, when he was 15 years old, he tracked me down at San Diego Comic Con, and I and 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 that is the one time only it kind of made sense because he was obviously still a teenager, you know. Now I met him again at Comic Con two years ago, you know, and he's now you know quite a bit older, <laughs> you know. I think he's in his, I think he's in his late 20s now, and he's a good guy, but most of the time I, I just filtered that out, you know. I really don't think about it. For one thing, I, I, I've had a pathological uh, drive to tell young writers, don't try to write like anybody. You know, when they say you influenced me, um, I hope that what they mean is, well, I really enjoyed reading your stuff, and I decided that fantasy was the genre I wanted to be in. Because it's something Joel Rosenberg and I used to talk about when we were together, you know, because uh, Joel and I collaborated on one book. And... Uh, and we'd be at a science fiction convention, and, and we would talk about style and such. And Joel would say, I write really lousy Feist, and he writes really lousy <laughs> Rosenberg. You know? and, and my message is always find your unique voice. You know? So the whole influence thing kind of creeps me out, actually. <laughs> yeah, Rob actually influences me to be a podcaster, and I'm a really lame, shitty version of Rob. So. <laughs> well, as long as one is self-aware, we like that. <laughs> 
you, you stated before that you don't actually write fantasy. Well, I, I've said this to uh, to people. Mikimi started off as a as a gaming environment. Okay, back when I was in college, you know, I had some mates who uh, you know were in that, and I, and I went out to visit the game one night. And what I found attractive about it wasn't the gaming itself; it was the social aspect. They were really. I was a returning student. I was older. I went back to college when I was twenty seven. So this was a bunch of graduate students, closer to my age. So finding people in their mid twenties was a great relief. You know, people more more mature and and uh, and so I used to start started hanging out just because I liked the people, and then I got sucked into the game environment. So it was an objective world. I mean, Mikimia was I, I built part of it. My contribution was the far coast and uh, the continent of Novendus, but you know, a lot of people put a lot of effort into that environment. So. In playing the game before I decided to take a bash at writing, stories would come out. You know, oh well, you know that arc, that artifact is a, a legacy from the Second Rift War. You know, and and so I'd hear the stuff about Rift Wars. Make a very long story short, I write historical novels about a place that doesn't exist, and that's how I look at it because all the stuff in the narrative is five hundred years. Well, Magician starts five hundred years before the era we gamed in, so the physical environment in Mecamia looked quite a bit different. It looked like what happened after the very last book, Magician's End. And that's that's how I see it. I, I uh, you know, I was a huge fan of historical novels when I was a kid. But Thomas, I read everything Thomas Costain wrote, uh, like Samuel Schellenberger, Mary Winnow, uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe, you know, really, really good historical writers. And uh, so it was very easy for me to approach the entire narrative process as if I was a historian writing about this place. So a lot of... Uh People we've interviewed have mentioned RPGs being the starting point of their various worlds. Do you think this is still a good a good way for newer writers to? I, I don't know. You know, it's 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 instructive in one respect, and that's that you start with a with a constraining environment. You know, I need to go yeah. over there. Oh hell, there are mountains between here and there. What, <laughs> what do I do? You know, um, and. That can be very useful because it can create it can instantly create plot needs, and the plot needs can lend themselves to story. You know, so you know, chapter five can be how George got over the mountain. You know, okay, fine if you do it well. And there are so many opportunities to get lost in a narrative. You know, I always tell uh, young writers, look, know how the damn thing ends. If you don't know how it ends, don't start. Because you'll just sort of flail around and wander aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years like Moses, unless you know where you're going. Now, how you get there, that can be a large part of the fun, because you discover characters you didn't even anticipate show up, and they tell you, no, 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 we're going that way, not this way, but we'll get there anyway. And, um, you know, oh, that's what happened between Chapter 2 and Chapter 6, you know, that kind of stuff. But you have to know where you're headed. And sometimes having a, a clearly delineated physical environment will help you towards that. And uh, I, I ha- in my newest uh, book, King of Ashes, I, I have a situation which didn't make sense to me until I realized, oh, wait a minute. These two landmasses, these two continents are much closer together than I had originally thought. And the reason all this crazy crap's going on is because there's a, a struggle for who controls ship passage through the Narrows. So I created the Narrows, you know, and realized that to prevent insanity these kingdoms had agreed to a covenant that said, okay, everybody gets free passage through the narrows. And so the start of the book is about a betrayal and somebody messing with the covenant. And suddenly a whole bunch of story elements just, boom, popped into my head. I went, okay, that's what this is about. King of Ashes is the first book of the War of Five Crowns. That's the new series. Well, yeah, we changed that title, though, because I, I okay. you know, it was, it was my subconscious borrowing from George. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, George. I didn't, re- yeah, War of Five Kings, <laughs> duh. <laughs> you know, hello. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll come up with something. In fact, in fact, the series may end up being King of Ashes, book one something, book two So I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Okay. Um, which is odd because usually uh, – I've had a couple of books where I didn't get the title until I, I finished the damn thing. Went, oh, it's going to be called, um, you know, something. But uh, <laughs> most of the time I have a title pretty well in hand by the time I hit, you know, the second chapter. This has been educational for me in a lot of ways. They're, they're, the book is historic; is just historically late. I mean, it's the latest I've ever been. I've never been more than two or three months late on a book. This one is like in its second year past due. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there are a variety of reasons for that, some of which are very personal and I won't go into, <clears throat> having to do with family issues. And, uh, you know, I had a thing with the IRS which just finally resolved itself yesterday after 15 years of... Wow. Yeah, no, this has been a real... As the Grateful Dead once wrote, what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> and uh, it's about 
time, you know, in fact, in fact, my head hasn't quite wrapped around yet that, oh, this is finally over. You know, um, and, and that was very wearing and very grinding and, and uh, distracting at times. And then mm-hmm. I realized that, that I took a lot of things for granted about my craft, which were invalid. You know, um, I, I used to tell people I've got like 30 years of writer's muscle memory. So I could like, I mean, there are lots of things about the craft that are a heck of a lot easier for me today than they were when I first started a magician. I mean, that is progress. But I realized, oh, I have never built a world from scratch before. Because when I did Kelowan, you know, for magician, I would tell people early on, the difference between the two worlds of Mekimi and Kelowan were when Mekimi was this really well-realized, detailed world that a lot of people put a lot of time into. Kelowan was a bunch of movie sets, mm-hmm. flats with nothing behind them. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. if you go through the door, there's nothing there. And I pulled it off. And then Janie created a huge environmental sense, if I can put it that way. She's an artist. She's, she's not only is she a published author, she's also a very fine illustrator. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I worked with the Empire series with her, uh, she just brought amazing things to that series. I learned a lot about the craft from working with her. You know, working with a writer who works in a very different style than you do can be very, very trying at times, but it also can be very, very educational. You know, you, you set a goal and say, well, uh, at the end of chapter four, we want to do this. And then you realize that you get the pages and you went, she just got to the end of chapter four. And yeah, it's where we agreed we'd be. But the way she got there was entirely different than what I would have done. And it's genius. It's brilliant. You know, uh, there are parts of that book that I can point to and say, okay, Janie wrote this and I just sort of like it has eye tracks on it. I looked at it and uh, Janie was getting married while we were doing Servant of the Empire. So she was a little distracted and I was getting married when we did Mistress of the Empire, so I was a little distracted. So there are entire sections of Mistress, which are 100% Janie Wirtz, you know, and there are entire entire sections of uh, Servant that are 100% mine. But there's stuff I can point to where I can't tell you who did first draft and who did rewrite. I don't know. You know, it's a it's a Feist Wirtz melding that, and I'm really proud of that series. I I, I think I I grew as a writer. I know Janie did, and I think it's a brilliant series. And and it was one of the very first where they. Just, you know, massively important female protagonist, and I really wanted that. That's the reason I chased Janie for a year to get her to write with me, was at that time I did not feel confident that I could write a convincing woman protagonist. Never having been a teenage girl, I sort of lacked the experience, you know. And uh, and I'm very proud of Mara. Uh, she did a lot of things dramatically that I think were unique at the time, and I think that was maybe where if people say, hey, I was influenced, I could accept that. She was a character who wasn't a chicken chain male you know, or a guy in drag. She was a woman, and her motivations were entirely protective. Everything she did was to protect her family, the people she loved. None of it was for self-aggrandizement or power. And boy, did it work. And so King of Ashes is the new novel. Um, I see on Amazon, it looks like it's May of 2017 is the release date. Uh, if I get it turned in in the next 60 days. <laughs> I really, I'm going to South Africa on the 21st of June, and I would really like it to be done before I leave. So as soon as I hang up with you guys, it's, it's uh, back in front of the computer, pretend I'm at work. Apologies to our listeners That's all for right. That's all right. slowing the creative muse. No, actually, I, I, as I said, yesterday was a big day when we finally, yeah. finally ended all that stuff with the... Uh, with my tax sure. and uh, so I'm still kind of rebounding from that. So you guys are yeah. welcome to, to pester me anytime. So King of Ashes must be pretty exciting then, uh, creating a brand new story world. Yeah, it's, and it's a different feel to it. I mean, it's, it's taken me a long time to really get to understand these characters, and that's what I meant about the the, the, the falsity of my you know my vanity that uh, I have this writer's muscle memory and I can just. Well, I could probably write another McKeemian book sitting on the back of a greyhound going cross-country. <laughs> but with a whole new set of characters, a whole new set of politics, a whole new set of societies, you know, it's, it's different. It's like trying to figure out, like I started off with this one culture, which were a bunch of Aiga um, ninjas. And I realized, no, that's a cliche. I, and, and more to the fact, I did a lot of that in the Empire series. You know, the, the Hamoi Tong was definitely a lot like the Aiga ninjas. And, you know, so what I did is I, I morphed them, and now they're kind of like Sicilian mafia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it's set up entirely different cultural parameters when you have bosses instead of masters, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's subtle, but it also really resonates. It, it, the, the entire series is about revenge, and the two main characters in the book, their, their paths cross. And, in fact, the entire first book is about the two of them meeting. It's just getting them together. The second book is is them working in concert, and the third book is them becoming enemies. And it's about what revenge does to you, and and 
one character, to put it simply, it's got really hot-blooded revenge. You know, his motivation is 100%. You know, I really want to make the son of a gun suffer. The other one is entirely cold. It's, I don't really have any personal feelings in this, but I have this duty. I have this obligation to revenge something. And, and so at the very end of the story, I'm hoping that the reader feels that it was a very satisfactory adventure drama examining a very common trope in fantasy, but one that I hope I'm, I'm looking at it in a kind of a new way that, that gives an insight into the price that's paid for revenge. Well, a lot of people that uh, listen to our show are, are into the so-called grimdark genre, and your new book sounds like it has some dark themes to it, revenge and... Well, plotting 101. All, all books are about... Con- I mean, you know, all drama is by, about conflict, period. You know, the, the, the thing I remember from, like, high school English literature was, you know, it's man versus man, man versus nature, or man versus himself. You know, it's yeah. conflict. Without conflict, you got you know, maybe a comedy. <laughs> you know, or a really, really dull lecture or poetics or, or poetry reading, you know, something. But the thing about it is, is the human, the human motivation is always, you know, the grist for the mill. I mean, it, it, this is sort of the flash of the, you know, blinding flash of the obvious stuff. But if you step back, you realize what do humans do pretty much more than anything else in the world when they're not like earning a buck? They Should watch other humans. We either we we watch sporting events or we watch you know drama, which is humans pretending to be other humans for the entertainment of a third set of humans. In other words, we are fascinated with ourselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. We really want to know why we work the way we do. It's the reason people still pay money to go see Shakespeare after four hundred years because he was about as good at it as a person's ever gotten. I mean, wrote insanely brilliant stuff. You know, my favorite writer of all time, and I think arguably the greatest writer in the history of the human race. I mean, I don't know how many times you've seen a particular play. I've seen Hamlet maybe five times. And every time I see it, I get a different message. I still don't know whether he's faking insanity or whether he really went crazy. And that is a classic example of it's okay to leave the reader, or in that case, the audience, with an unanswered question as long as it's a really good question. I, I could direct that play either way. You just get caught up in your own stuff and you end up dead. Or, no, actually, you did go nuts. <laughs> you did lose it. <laughs> you, know, you, you can go either way with that play. You know, it's just, it's just some wonderful stuff. And you want to talk about revenge, talk about Titus Andronicus. Jeez, you know, my stuff's going to look like a walk through the park compared to that play. I always liked uh, pouring poison in someone's ear as a way to mm. kill them. <laughs> That's pretty inventive. Yep. The new series then is a planned trilogy. It, that's the plan, you know. I mean, okay. uh, I mean, I, I for the first time in many years, I, I live in dread of getting a call from my uh, editor going, "Oh boy, we hate to tell you this, but <laughs> <laughs> thirty books." You know, that, that would uh, be that would be the <laughs> the education of an older writer, part one. And I'm sure this will be the only time that you're asked this, but is Magician's End really the end? Well, I said of- that, I've said this from from. 20 seconds after handing in, I have no plans to go back, but uh, you know, I'll never say never. Okay. I, I think, <clears throat> and, there, and there's a reason for that. And, and part of it is that, is that it was always about the five Rift Wars. The Rift War cycle was, you know, when I wrote Magician, I did not know anybody was going to buy it. So if you read Magician, it really can look like a standalone novel. And I put little bits here and there that, that I, I said, well, if I do a sequel, then we can jump off of this. By the time I got into Shadow of a Dark Queen, uh, actually, it was it was the second book. It was uh, when I was doing Rage of a Demon King. No, actually, the second book was Rise of a Merchant Prince. So I was doing the third book. Okay, Rage of a Demon King. About, about halfway through there, I went, oh, hell, I'm doing all five wars, aren't I? And so I knew I was going to have five series in there. I didn't know that I'd have two bridge books in there, which is, you know, Prince of the Blood and, and King's Buccaneer. And then, you know, some of the side stuff that I did with the other writers and uh, the, the, you know, the Jimmy the Hand stuff that, based on the games, you know, the Crondor, the Betrayal and the rest. So when I got to the end of it, I went, I've told the story. Fine, I'm done. Now let's go do something else. So I made a deal with my editor. I'm going to do uh, the King of Ashes thing. And then I've got a standalone dark fantasy, not like fairy tale, but. Um, but, but, but contemporary, you know, I'll be, I'll be getting into, uh, it's called elder gods and it's what happens when the elder gods come back you know, cool. and find the world that we live in now. And they're not amused. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, cool. but ne- I'll never say never. 
I mean, Medkemia, yeah. as I said, it, it to me it's an objective place, and I write historical novels about it. And you know, I've, I've had people say, "Well, what happens next?" You know, I go, "Oh, well, you know, basically, I don't know." <laughs> if I suddenly get an itch and go, "Oh, wait a minute," you know, the guy went to the place and found the thing, and then you know, fine, then then there may be another Medkemian book down there. But right now, at this point, I have no plans. Yeah. Was there any sort of satisfaction when you handed in Magician's End and you said that's the story? It was weird. Was it? Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's like saying goodbye to a whole cast of friends. Now, I've killed off a whole bunch of characters. I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm a piker compared to George, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's like, but I, but I am in that school that says a character is just simply a tool to, to drive the story. And when his or her time is done, it's done. So, you know, and in fact, it's funny, uh, early on in my career, I had some person taking the test because none of your heroes ever die. And it's like, okay, so, you know, in the first trilogy, Roland and, and uh, Raoul and uh, Lord Boric don't count. Okay, got it. Uh, <laughs> but the, the thing is, you know, they're all mortal and, and there is no sense of risk. Uh, I'll give you a Star Trek analogy. Early on in the first series, right? Okay, the guy's got a red shirt. He's the one who's dying. <laughs> because, you know, we knew the, the, the big three and the, and the little four were golden. You know, we were not going to see Kirk, Spock, or Bones die. And we weren't going to see Ohura, uh, Sulu, Chekhov, and, uh, oh, I'm blanking on Scotty. Yeah, Scotty. Go. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all... They're all fine because one, they've got contracts with Paramount. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the it's the nature of episodic television. You know, uh, Rockford wasn't going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's you know, I mean, I got to admit, my my son and I are huge Blacklist fans. It's a brilliant series, and the, the writing is first rate. It's some of James Spader's best acting, and the backstory arc is what drives it. You know, the villain of the week. Okay, fine, but the backstory arc is just brilliant. And now, huge motivation for the main character for four seasons is gone. And it's like, okay, what's going to fill that void? Now, that's good drama. You know, mm -hmm. if you're a fan of a TV show, okay, like I like Supernatural in spite of my better judgment, you know. <laughs> and God shows up and he's a hack writer. And I, you know, I, and I'm losing my mind. I'm laughing my ass off. Sitting, sitting here alone, my kid's out doing stuff, you know, and I'm just laughing out loud. And it's one of those things that, fine, you know, Sam and Dean, well, see, Sam and Dean will die, but they'll get better. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you accept the show within the confines of what episodic television is about. When you're writing books like I do, you know, or George does, or, you know, Terry Brooks or whoever, you know, it's like if characters aren't at risk, the reader's not going to have any sense of peril or danger. And that's kind of the nature of the beast. And that's always kind of been my issue with prequels. Yeah, I don't like them characters. much at all. You know what's going to happen. Well, it's like the first three Star Wars movies. You know, Lucas had a problem. We Everybody knew that Anakin was going to turn into Darth Vader. So the way in which that happened better be interesting, and unfortunately it wasn't. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my son kind of liked them just because, you know, at the time it came out, he was a kid. He's 20 now, mm -hmm. but, you know. And, like, stuff was blowing up all over the place. So in that sense, okay, fine. You know, George is having lots of fun with the CGI. I liked The Force Awakens. I've seen people criticize it because they thought it was just a reboot. And I said, no, there's, there's some stuff going on. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's still a very lush. And, and I mean, my son is a total Star Wars geek. <laughs> uh, I mean, he could tell you who the third pink guy on the side of the fourth cartoon is, you know. I mean, oh, okay. And, and his backstory. And being that you're in San Diego, you are centrally located towards the San Diego Comic Con, which is a uh, fairly large. Um, I how would you say? I remember comic when it was like six hundred people at, <laughs> on the campus at UCSD when I was a student. <laughs> it's ballooned slightly since then. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you go back to Wikipedia and look at the attendance figures, you can see the big jumps when it went from oh it was eight thousand and now it was and the next year it was twenty two thousand, and then oh it was. You know, I mean, it's just off the hook crazy now. How would you say convention attendance has played a role in your career over the past 30 um, years? Interesting story, if you have the time. Let me see if I can give you the digest version. I was told by several writers of my acquaintance, you know, like Greg Bear, early on in my career, oh, you have to go to conventions. And this is back in the early 80s. So I started going in like 83. Magician was published in November of 82. And I think the first convention I went to was uh, Westercon at the Red Lion Inn in San Jose near the airport. Um, that's where I met Terry Carr. But I thought it was cool. I mean, I met people who had fanzines and people who would talk to me about first fandom and names that I had, you know, 
heard as a kid reading Ace Doubles and, and Ballantine science fiction. And when you could buy a paperback novel for 25 cents and I ate it up and I would go and I went to Worldcon and I went to World Fantasy and I thought World Fantasy early on was great. I, it was just a lot of fun, mostly prose and, mm-hmm. you know, people who I really respected. I think it was LA Con 2, which I want to say was maybe around 91 or so. I ran to the, to the you know, lovely guy, Marty Greenberger, similarly crazy. And, and Marty and I met early on in my career, and we really tried to sit down and have a chat every chance we got, I mean, at least once at a convention, just because we enjoyed each other's company. And I asked him, I said, so I said, how, and, and he was kind of my window into, quote, fandom, unquote. And I said, how's the state of fandom? And he said, graying. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, getting older. And I went back to a convention last year for the first time in years in New York, and uh and yeah, he was right. It's like, it's like, yes, there are some young faces, but they're like my kids. They're going to media cons. But at the time I said to him, Marty, what, 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 what would you put as the population of fandom? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I said people who use terms like gaffiate and uh, smoth and know what the hell they're talking about. And he said, worldwide, about 50,000 people. Because the biggest attendance ever at a world con was that one. And it was like 9,000, give or take a nickel. And it suddenly hit me. I'm, I'm in the wrong place. So I called my publisher and I said, okay, I'm, I'm not doing cons anymore. Because I was at that time, I had already had three New York Times bestsellers. And I said, if it's 50,000 people, I can go into a convention and maybe 10% of the people in attendance are my readers. So that means I go to a convention and, and, and it's a world con. You know, I got 900 readers in that convention. So what am I doing there? You know, I'm, I'm pe- preaching to the choir. I've already saturated. It's a total waste of my time and energy. Now, I should say, I was never a fan of cons in the sense of I like going to them just to go to them. I mean, there were things about cons I enjoyed. I really enjoyed some of the people I met. And I really liked hanging out in the bar with them and chatting. But, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily find it fun to be sitting on a panel with six other writers, you know, yapping about how, how does your magic work or whatever the heck we're talking about, you know. Um, so how does your magic work? Can you tell yeah. us? <laughs> <laughs> and the dog you and, and the horse you rode in town on, yeah, right. And the little dog that followed after. Anyway, the, the the thing about it to me was always if I'm gonna not be sitting in front of the computer working, I have a general theory in life. Now I'm seventy years old, you know, I, I have this idea that if I don't have to do something, you know, like like meet a contract obligation or pay taxes or you know, sit on jury duty or whatever. In, in other words, if it isn't something that I must do, then it better be fun. Because you know, I don't have that many years left. So, you know, I got a lot more yesterdays than I have tomorrow's. And so if I'm going to be out working the room, you know, doing my stand-up routine, it better be to a bunch of people who really want me to be there, not just, oh, you know, I'm at this convention and he's over in the corner and I got nothing better to do. So I told my, uh, my, my publisher, I said, you know, get me to college campuses, get me to book signings, get me to, you know, public appearances where I just don't happen to be one of many. I happen to be the reason they're going there so I can, so I can, you know, really maximize, optimize my time and energy. And subsequent to that, the entire touring thing in the United States has changed dramatically. They just don't tour the way they used to. We still tour in England. We still tour, you know, in Britain and Ireland. We still tour in Australia. The Aussies are mad. It's a great market. And uh, New Zealand, because you're on your way to Australia. Um, and South Africa, as I said, is an emerging market. And I've had some success in France and Holland. But the author's tour that was around t- even 20 years ago is gone. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, America has gotten so mediated and so blasé. You've you got to be Joe Rowling's or George Martin. And I mean George Martin after the TV show. Because mm-hmm. when George and I would go to conventions together, you know, we were just two guys who wrote books. Uh, and George had a lot more TV background than I do, which is why people mm-hmm. think I preceded him. I didn't. He, he and I broke in about the same time. I loved his book, Armageddon Rag. God, I thought that was a brilliant book, you know, and, uh, and Fever Dream, you know, and then he went and did television for a while. So he didn't really mm-hmm. start Game of Thrones, you know, the, the Song of Ice and Fire, you know, like 10, 15 years after I started Magician, I guess. I don't know. But he was off yeah. doing, you know, He was a story editor for Beauty and the Beast, and he wrote scripts for Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. And then he came back and did a collection of short story anthologies with, I think it was Bantam, or maybe Delray, I don't know, called Wild Cards, which was comic book theme related. So, you know, George George has been around a long time. Do you you think uh, this is something that people debate about, but do you think writing short stories is still a viable way for people to get their name out there? Like, uh, there's lots of anthologies out there now. Well, I don't know, because, you know, for me, it was always, on a word-by-word basis, for me, short fiction is always more difficult. You know, I can write a novel, but a short story, oh, my God, you know. See, short stories have to have a completely different structure internally. They're kind of like a joke. You sort of build to a punchline. 
Um, I mean, it doesn't mean it's funny, but I mean, the point of the story has to be like a punchline. Mm-hmm. And and they have the. I mean, I've written enough short fiction to know that I'm not as. I may be as good at it. I don't know, but I don't. I'm not as comfortable with it as I'm writing novels. So I admire really good short story writers. You know, guys like Harlan Ellison blow me away. I mean, you know, Robert Silverberg. I mean, they're just really, really good at short fiction. And uh, but I don't know about the visibility. You know, I mean, and, and this actually has much more to do with the with the change in the landscape of the market. You know, it's like Amazon was never a book seller. Amazon was an order fulfillment company that Jeff Bezos dreamt up, and books were his first choice because you didn't break books when you shipped them. And the entire distribution network was already in existence, so it was really easy for him to tap into it. And he managed to stay alive for a lot of years because valuation always exceeded um, value. Uh, and so for the first five years, Amazon was kind of like a Ponzi scheme. You know, the cash flow from an expanding user base really kept it afloat until value caught up with valuation. And he started selling Rolex watches and, you know, Bentleys. I mean, you can buy a damn Bentley on Amazon, for Christ's sake, you know. Um, so the problem, though, is because books were the first subject, it completely gutted. I mean, when was, when was the last time you saw, you know, a Borders? When was the last time you saw Walden Books or a B. Dalton's, you know, or Crown? So, so all the traditional retail channels that I was familiar with are gone. So I, I would not know how to break in today. I could tell you a tedious length how I, I flogged Magician and made it a success when it was on the verge of being a disaster because I have a degree in marketing and I used to be a salesman and I got in my car and I drove from San Diego to the Bay Area and I visited every bookstore I could find in the phone book. Remember phone books? <laughs> Remember the yellow pages? Vaguely. <laughs> yeah. And, and convinced them to carry my books and then called the distributor that wasn't carrying magician and say, Hey, look, I got all these independents that, you know, aren't big enough to order directly from Doubleday. And the gal said, well, okay, I'll put 50 in the LA warehouse. And this was Ingram. And, uh, you know, I'll see it happen. Well, I already had back, I had already back orders for like 200 at Ingram. So the second the 50 hit the distribution point, they were gone. So immediately that caused a back sale order, you know, back ordered, it got back on double day's hot list. They did a resolicitation. The next thing you know, I'm in second and third printing and I'm a hero to everybody. You can't do that today. There is no way you can do that because the independent booksellers don't exist anymore. I had 35% of my books were sold through independence when I was a magician. Now, maybe there's a virtual alternative to that. Maybe if you can get enough people on the internet to order from Amazon. You see where I'm, see where I'm going with this? I mean, I do not know how you make yourself known. People ask me about self-publishing, and I say, I'm a dinosaur. I have no idea what the value of self-publishing is. I do know there are people out there making serious bank because, you know, if if you get 10% of 100,000 books or 100% of 10,000 books, you know, what's your better option? And, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I just have no easy answer for any of that. So, no, I do not have a clue if writing short fiction is still a way to get your name known. I don't. Well, I wanted to talk to you just for a moment, too, about fans, too. Um, no doubt you have legions um, across the globe. Um, I even mentioned in our Facebook group, uh, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, that uh, we were going to have you on the show. And anybody have any favorite books or favorite characters? And overwhelmingly, the response was um, a couple of comments were a magician basically hooked me into speculative fiction. Another commenter said, um, Raymond started my love for reading. So, I mean... Fans love your work, and and your 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 fiction has been a gateway drug to to many readers. <laughs> hey, kid, the first one's free. Yeah, <laughs> here's this book called Magician. Give it a read. <clears throat> um, but I was just going to ask you, what's maybe the most memorable fan interaction that you've had? That's kind of just kind of resounds got, with you got, or resonates I, I with have you two, today. Two quick stories, and, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying it's it's um, really deeply in the un- unintended consequences category. I was in Birmingham, England many years ago, and I think I was flogging uh, Rage of a Demon King. And there was a young gentleman sitting in the front row in a wheelchair. And I usually do like a 10, 15, 20-minute talk, depending on how things are going. And then I do a Q&A. And he stuck his hand up, and I called him in first. And he said, I want to thank you for a character you wrote in King's Buccaneer. You know, having a character with a physical handicap. And I went, okay. And he said, I was in a car accident. And then he told me which vertebrae got wrecked or whatever. So it put him in a wheelchair. And he said, I read that scene where Pug explains to Nicholas about being in love with your pain and using that as a metric to define who you are and give yourself excuses. 
He said, I put the book down, I cried, and then I called my doctor and told him I was ready to start my physical therapy. That's one. The other one was in Australia the last time I was down there three years ago. And uh, a guy comes up and he says, I want to thank you for saving my brother's life. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, my brother was a junkie criminal. And he gave a very long explanation about the penal system down in Australia and, and how difficult it was to get the books to him. But he wanted his brother to read my books. When his brother came out of prison, he said, I want to change. And his brother said, okay, you've said that before. He says, no, I mean it this time. I really want to change. I want to be like Jimmy the Hand. And his brother looked at him and said, what do you mean? He says, he's a, he's a criminal who turned his life around and became somebody important, somebody valuable, somebody who contributed. That's who I want to be. And then, he, and then the guy told me, he said, and my brother's been on the straight and narrow for two years now, and he's got a job, and he's engaged, and, and, it's, and it's all, okay. This stuff really kind of creeps me out. <laughs> it's, it's a little hard, it's a little hard to take because remember what I said earlier about sitting there in front of the computer in the bubble and I'm and I'm you know not thinking about how people are going to react to this stuff. The task of a writer is to create a narrative that that has some heft, some some gravitas, if you will, to the reader who who experiences it on an emotional level uh, because they care about what happens and they care about the characters. What you don't expect is a real life consequence of that care for the character in the situation. I don't write to change people's lives. That's not my mission. I write to entertain. And I like to tell people in those situations, look, you were ready for whatever it was you did. And I happen to be a catalyst with my work. But, you know, I think probably something else would have also catalyzed that. Because if I sat around and thought about whose lives I was changing, I would never write another word. I'd be paralyzed with indecision. Uh, but those are the kinds of things you get occasionally that really put you on your uppers, as they say in Britain. You know, you just <laughs> set the, you sit there and shake your head. You know. The one I like the best is I didn't like reading until I read Magician. You know, or Magician got me hooked in reading. That kind of stuff. That, that I love. I love hearing that stuff. You know, the most recently troubling was this really pretty little sixteen-year-old who wanted to, you know, get into my luggage and come back to California with me to sit and watch me type. I thought that was a little weird. <laughs> you know, yeah, Jeez. South African girl, really, really charming kid. So you know, yeah. But no, I, I really like, and I will say, I really have, I think, some very decent fans. Uh, uh, you know, good people who. I mean, look, I've seen some of the stuff Clyde Barker gets. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know Anne Rice's fans are notorious. I mean, you know, you got some pretty strange customers out there, and I have very, very few of those. What do you call your fans? Like feisties or no? Fe <laughs> I call them fans. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> So we can try the lightning round. This is a fun segment that we do because we like to have fun here on the Grim Tidings podcast. And uh, this is one of the manifestations. It's called the lightning round. Where we're basically going to what do we we kind of ask questions. We kind of give you um, something to, to chew on and you just have to be quick and brilliant and give us your response. to. So this is the therapy say, part of the show. OK. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You can treat it as word association or you yeah, can exactly or you could or, or you could rant on it a little bit if you want yeah, okay. to, if it's something you're passionate about. Um, and we insert a fun lightning round uh, sound effect um, as well um, in post-production. We're not that fancy. So. There it is. So, okay. Phil, we'll just – there you go. <laughs> There's the lightning round effect. So, we have legendary fantasy author Raymond E. Feist on the hot seat for this edition of the lightning round where we're just going to throw things at him and see how he responds. And uh, the prize for winning today is Philip. What's the prize? The prize for winning today will be a bottle sh of Baron de l'Estac Bordeaux shipped <laughs> all the way from Japan. It's half empty. <laughs> uh, even when the cork's in it, it doesn't travel well. <laughs> I've, I've, had, I've, had, I've had stuff shipped from Japan. A lot of really actually good whiskey comes out of Japan. So. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Suntory is famous. <laughs> Suntory owns just about everything. I was thinking of two of their labels, Hibeki and uh, Yamazaki, both really good whiskeys. That brings us to number one <laughs> in the lightning round. Whiskey or wine? Oh, whiskey. Whiskey. I, okay. Actually, both. It depends on who's paying. Okay. <laughs> the same time. If you're paying either one. <laughs> <laughs> what's the best whiskey? Uh, that's like saying, what's the best music? Come on. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a space side guy. My, my go-to whiskey is Glenfiddich. But, you know, pretty much there's not a lot of bad whiskey. You know, I mean, there is some that you kind of, okay, fine. Evan Williams, maybe. Uh, no, I, I mean, <laughs> some of the newer distilleries, because now all the boutique breweries in America are making vodka or whiskey. I had my first taste of South African whiskey about two years ago, uh, three sales. And my reaction was, boy, I'm really glad these people make great wine. <laughs> Can't all yeah, shout out to our new sponsor, Evan Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Rob just slagged off. 
Okay, the next, one. the next entry is, as I understand, one of your favorite characters of all time, Huckleberry Finn. I would say, in, in some ways, spiritual ancestor of Jimmy the Hand, with a little artful dodger thrown in. Yeah, I mean, Twain did some things with that character, especially in the uh, second volume, in, in Huckleberry Finn, demonstrating, the, I guess maybe the word is charm, you know, but definitely the, the, the darker side of the antebellum culture in the South. Huck was a prisoner of his culture. He was a product of environment, whether he wanted to be or not. And yet there was a sensibility about him. You know, Jim was this dimensional human being to him, and yet, you know, he still called him an N, you know, the N-word. And saw him in the context of, you know, society's view of him as a lesser, lesser being. And he played that brilliantly. Twain wrote those characters in such a way that you could understand the duality and understand how Huckleberry could accept that dichotomy gracefully as part of you know his natural understanding of how the universe worked brilliantly written book often put forth as the great american novel you know the other candidate is usually melville's moby dick which is great for completely different reasons okay number three in the lightning round would be pug okay um a character that i really started battling with about uh two-thirds of the way through the series it didn't occur to me until i started getting in where i could see sort of see the end of the series on the horizon and I realized that I had him operating in a fashion that I kind of took for granted in the narrative. And I stepped back and looked at it. And what I came up with is that his driving, you know, his raison d'etre was, was doing the right thing. He saw himself as being this protector of, of Midkemia, which was, you know, the, the threat from the, the enemy during Darkness of Sethanon and, and the various demon hordes and you know, when when he was facing the Dasadi and all that. And I thought, I need to address that. And so I had the first falling out between him and his son, Magnus, where, where Magnus basically, for, you know, two or three chapters, wasn't speaking to his father because he was saying, you know, what price? I mean, how far are you willing to go? And we find out at the end of the series that Pug is willing to go all the way. He's willing to die to do the right thing. And that's how I define the character, you know. And, and it's one of those things where I did not see that coming even though I'd already written like, you know, 20 books with the guy. Okay, next one, The Thursday oh, yeah. Nighters. Many of them still friends. In fact, uh, they, they get together on a very loose schedule, maybe once a month for a, a, a sort of a kind of a throwback game of, of uh, the Midkemian role-playing, though it usually involves large quantities of food and, and beverage. Uh, so it's more of a social thing than the actual hardline gamers. One of my friends, uh, Rich Spall, who, you know, stayed here in San Diego as well, um, he still plays every week. He's got a group, uh, none of the originals, but Rich has got some people who came aboard sort of later in the curve who are still with him. It, it was mostly social. I really enjoyed those people's company. And the gaming was fun too, but the Thursday nighters became the Friday nighters when we realized that many of us were like dragging our ass into class on Friday or missing class altogether. Mm-hmm. And that Friday made more sense. <laughs> the reason it was Thursday originally was because that was the night the Triton Wargaming Society at UC San Diego met. And uh, a lot of miniature models and, you know, uh, Napoleonic and Civil War and Middle Ages, you know, uh, miniatures. And then the role-playing thing arose out of that. Original D&D, people don't know, was actually a supplement to a miniatures game called Chainmail that uh, Gygax and Arneson wrote. And it was to answer the question, what if Gandalf had been at the Battle of Argincourt? You know, and so they said, oh, I guess we need rules for magicians in miniatures. And so that, that spawned a thing. You know, it was, you know, this is the thing about certain trends in entertainment, which is unintended consequences again. It's people don't realize that um, Dungeons and Dragons started off as a supplement to miniature wargaming. You know, guys with tape measures and, you know, lots of dice deciding, you know, how many cavalrymen died <laughs> coming down the hill at Argencorn. Wiz- Wizards of the Coast had no idea how huge Magic the Gathering was going to be when they published that first deck of cards. You know, a bunch of guys in the basement and, you know, suddenly they're billionaires. It's, it's that kind of stuff, you know. It's like people don't realize, I mean, 99% of the people who are fans of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles don't realize that, you know, Eastman and Laird were parroting a comic book by Frank Miller called Ronin. You know? <laughs> I mean... Everybody knows the, t- the turtles. Ronan? What's that? Isn't that a movie starring Robert De Niro? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, good movie too. Is it sad that I have uh, a bunch of du- I have a Dungeons and Dragons book just sitting here and I never get to play with it? It's kind of you need sad, to get right? out more often. <laughs> it's just sitting here. Shatter Run also. 
I found in Japan. Mm. English versions. It's pretty awesome. Mm. Okay. All right. One, Almost done here. One, maybe one last one or two sure. more? Maybe one or two, yeah. Okay. How about the wonderful, exciting world of Warcraft? We hear you're an avid player. Yeah, I got sucked into that because my friend Steve Abrams, the guy I partnered up with for all the gaming-related stuff, and basically the father of Midkemia, he got me hooked. And then it became a way that I could play with my kids. My daughter lives in the Bay Area, and my son, for a long time, was up there as well, and now he's back living with me. Uh, but yeah, every once in a while I get on with my kids, but, but I, I became the obsessive one in the family in the sense that, well, I, I got fans of Blizzard. I'll tell you a true story. I had a problem with my account. So I called the Blizzard. I, I just, you know, said, screw it. I picked up the phone, called the 800 number and I get a young man at the other end. He says, yes. And he, I said, look, I'm blah, 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 this and that. And, uh, about two minutes into the call, he goes, uh, I noticed the name on the account is, uh, you know, Raymond D. Feist. Uh, he said, any relation to the writer? I said, no, I am the writer. <laughs> and there was this pause. And he said, I hope you don't mind, but uh, I put you on speaker because <laughs> all the other people here at the Health Center are fans of yours. Wow. And I went, okay, fine. You know, and I had a couple of questions about stuff I was doing while he was helping me get my account back up and running. <laughs> and then it occurred to me after I got back online, wait a minute, there were people on hold all over the world waiting for those guys to get back to the phones. <laughs> Yeah, so right now I'm mount grinding. You know, it's, it's there's a very long discussion I have with my son, who's an avid gamer and really good, by the way. I mean, I jokingly tell him he should like be, become a professional Twitch guy. Mm. You know, he, he's got ridiculous scores and things like World of Tanks and World of Planes and stuff like that. Um, but about you know the the pros and cons of problems that Blizzard's having. You know, because they've they've recently lost a huge portion of their fan base due to some stuff I don't understand. But in general, it's like that's the problem with that ever-evolving environment, which is that you get to the end game of a particular expansion, you've done it all. You know, and some people are they have no lives. You know, they do it all in the first twenty minutes after the expansion comes, you know, or, or first three weeks or however long. And I said, Okay, you gotta come up with your own task. So I decided I'd be a mount grinder. Uh, that was kind of cool because you get these bonus mounts if you do weird shit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm 70 years old. I don't cruise the bars looking for chicks anymore. You know, <laughs> I don't even drink and drive anymore. I, you know, I call Uber. If I know I'm going to go someplace <laughs> and drink, Uber drives me. <laughs> Trust me, one DUI in California will make you a true believer in Uber. <laughs> gotcha. And, uh, yeah, so I like gaming. I, I like Warcraft. You gaming anything uh, else besides Warcraft recently? Or? Not recently. No, I've I've tried a couple of the uh, you know it's free until you want content and then you got to pay you know <laughs> websites and then a lot of that stuff is I'm a Mac guy so a lot of that stuff is PC only or console okay. only. Mm -hmm. I watch you know I watch over my son's shoulder once in a while when he's blowing crap up. I'm not a Twitch guy so the, mm -hmm. the first person shooters don't appeal to me that much. You know Warcraft is the right blend. In fact, my big complaint about Warcraft a couple of times has been how dare you give me a quest chain and then the last thing I got to do is go find people and go to go to a raid when they put in you know the looking for group stuff where i could do that with strangers fine then i'm okay i can you know i need a group i want to you know i want to go down and kill the ugly bugly at the bottom of the mine so you know i'll, I'll do a looking for group thing and and then i'll find like-minded people but um yeah no i i'm very comfortable with the interface at warcraft and the level of uh, when i have to do twitch like stuff it's it's not you know i don't die 11 times you know i died maybe twice but with the shooters, I cannot do the first-person shooters. Look at my sit. My son is just deadly with that stuff. He's just brilliant. <laughs> and then I think the last one we could do, maybe the best writing advice you've ever received. Finish what you start. Butt in chair. You know, fingertips on keys. I didn't know I was going to be a novelist until I started Magician. So now I want to try, try, try telling a story. But I knew I was a good writer because in college I found that I could get A's on papers that I just hacked out the night before rather than take a final. So by my uh, sophomore year at UCSD, into my sophomore year, my, my last two years there, I went, okay, fine. And I, I would look in what they call the course and professor evaluation thing and, uh, you know, look and see, okay, paper, paper, final, don't want that guy, want this guy. And I graduated cum laude. And if I had figured it out a year before, I would have graduated summa cum laude. So best advice is I know people who live at workshops and never get anything finished. Mm -hmm. I know people who, you know, subscribe to online stuff, never get anything finished. Robert Heinlein had a very famous set of things about being a writer, and, and I'm probably not going to do them justice because I'm doing this from memory. But his thing was, of everybody who says they want to write, only 10% sit down and actually try to write. Of everybody who tries to write, only 10% 
finish what they started. Of those who finish what they started, only 10% submit it to the marketplace. Of those who submit it to the marketplace, only 10% submit it to the marketplace once it's rejected or resubmit or rewrite. In other words, he was saying, you know, a lot of people want to write. Very few people actually finish, and very few people actually get into it. You know, I was fortunate because my 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 stepfather was a writer, director, producer in Hollywood and had connections. So I managed to use that to get in touch with probably the best literary agent alive at the time, Harold Matson. And it took him two years to get that to get Magician sold to Doubleday. And then there's a long story which I will share with you some other time about about how Doubleday approached me and the fact that Magician got very severely rewritten, but a very good education in how to write a story. Finish what you start. That's the best advice I can give you. And a quick Google search of Heinlein's rules on writings will show kind of a, a few more of his fundamental rules of, of writing. I know a lot of writers um, heed to what uh, Heinlein had to say, so that's some yeah, good stuff. The guy, the guy actually wrote a book or two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finished what he started. He was, he, he, was a, he was an amazing influence on me as a kid. When I was a kid, I, in, in what they call his YA stuff, his tunnel in the sky and, uh, you know, I mean, doorway, what was it? Uh, uh, I'm blanking on, uh, you know, R is for Rocket and, uh, you know, the, 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 the stuff that came before Stranger in a Strange Land. And then Stranger in a Strange Land and the stuff that came after that was a completely different thing. I loved his fantasy novel, Glory Road. That was great. Any other appearances coming up for you uh, at all in at, the States? At or? this point, I've tentatively agreed to return to Australia in 2017. And like the last time, I will be bookending and tour with two appearances at at Supanova, and I believe this time it'll be Brisbane and Adelaide. Uh, I'm sure Harper Collins will have me in Sydney and Perth, Melbourne as well. I post that information on Facebook, on my website, cryd.com, and Twitter. And so folks can find you online at cryd.com yep. is the website. You're on Facebook, you're on Twitter. Yep. Not as much on Twitter as I you know, probably should be, but then I only have so many hours in the day to put out mindless drill. Well, you know Twitter's you... a cult, right? <laughs> we, we explained this on the show. Uh, wouldn't shock me. I just, I, you know, you know, I mean, okay, without, without hijacking your show and going off into a two hour, That's a, you have, and, and without going into like a two hour political rant. <laughs> this election has shown me more about how social media works and how, and how dysfunctional it can be than anything I've ever experienced in my life. That it is. It's a jungle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, remember when it helped the Arab Spring? Now it's helping Donald Trump. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a strange thing. Very strange thing. Well, fingers crossed. You're working hard to get King of Ashes wrapped up, and hopefully we can see that in May of 2017. That's the plan the new series and Raymond it's been great to touch base with you I know a lot of fans will wait in line for hours and get to talk with you for two minutes before they get to move on and we're humbled and, and glad to be able to just sit with you for an hour and a half and just talk about fantasy and stuff it's been great just uh, connecting hey, with you my pleasure you can find us online at facebook.com slash the grim tidings podcast or on twitter at grim dark fiction download the show on itunes stitcher or podbean and if you like this show please share it and leave a review. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.